Okay, welcome to What is the Heart? Lesson 2. I've entitled this lesson, The Stewardship of the Heart, that will also cover the heart-searching characteristic of Jesus Christ. We are writing this curriculum, though these lessons were prepared and began seven years ago. Uh, I need to hurry up and get this out there to help the body of Christ, because this is really like the blueprints of how we work and if we can understand how we work, we can work it better. But, but massive word of warning here. Once you're taught this doctrine, you'll never have another excuse for nothing, no way. And as we cover this for the next probably eight to ten weeks, we're going to see how we can diffuse military PTSD, overcome rape trauma. We can overcome divorce trauma. We can overcome abuse trauma. And if you aren't an Afghan war vet, a rape victim survivor, or have watched a spouse be murdered or a baby die, then you've got no excuse because we can fix anything. And even with understanding the heart, those heinous things we just described, that can be overcome as well. So don't just let this be more curriculum you gather and more understanding you log away in your data bank. God doesn't need your brain to be a little human Google. He needs your heart to be right with him. So that's the big word of warning on these lessons because we're going to show you how to get your heart right concerning anything. You're not going to ever be able to say, well, I don't have a heart for it or I just don't want to. We'll look at in the next couple weeks how the Bible says you have authority over even your will. So you say, shut up and want to. Amen. All right. The stewardship of the heart. To fully understand the Bible's doctrine on the heart we must use a theological hermeneutic, all right? And that means we don't take one or two scriptures out of context. We look at every verse on that subject, and we let the Bible build the big picture of this doctrine. A theological hermeneutic, hermeneutic is the laws of interpretation, but a theological hermeneutic is also a topical study. So we're going to look at all the scriptures on the heart. Now, maybe not in this curriculum. So far, I'm averaging 80 scriptures per lesson. So if I do this for 10, that's 800 verses, which is about how many there are in the Bible on the heart. And I, if, if I were to brag on anything humbly, this is the one thing I have probably studied more than any subject in the entire Bible. And so I, some of you, you are new to our church and you're new to this teaching, and I'm already having folks wanting to come and respectfully debate me. And I would just say, hold your mouth and let's study this together because I was searching this out 20 years ago. And the, a lot of these things I was proving 20 years ago, and we're just now putting it to paper. So just sit back, breathe it in. We're going to let a lot of these scriptures do the speaking for themselves, and uh, we'll, we'll prove the point as we go along. When it's all said and done, we'll be able to judge the accuracy of it, is if, if we can look at it and go, oh, that makes sense, or oh, that's so simple. Oh, and that's when it's a revelation where you say, I didn't, how come I never saw this before? Why is it that simple that I never done seed it before? All right. A theological hermeneutic means we must look at as many uh, heart scriptures as possible. Heart is used over 750 times in the Bible. The Hebrew word is leb, and that's used 593 times, and the Greek is cardia, and that is used 160 times. These references will more than help us build a working understanding of our heart. One of the, understand, uh, one of the outstanding characteristics of our heart is its ability to be controlled. And this is where we have to really focus. We have the ability to control our heart. 
Now, this is significant because we kind of proved gently and briefly last week that the heart of man and the spirit of man are two different entities. The spirit of man is either dead and on its way to hell for eternal damnation, or the spirit of man is born again, having been recreated in the image and likeness of God. And if it's recreated in the image of likeness of God, then there is a positional truth that says it is seated in heavenly places. And if it's seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, there's no sense in trying to control it. You can't control it. Because you don't control it, it's just in Christ. But our heart, as we know, is something totally different altogether. So we're trying to put words to what it is our heart is. And I think we'll even find, whether we originally agreed with the sentiment that the heart and the spirit are two different things, we already function like they are. And I find it quite humorous where people believe one thing but live a different. And they live differently. So most folks in our circles, faith circles, think the heart and the spirit are are the same thing, but they live like they're two different things. So I, I guess I don't care what you believe. Just be consistent in how you live it out. But we're going to prove to you, you were living it right all along. We just want your brain to be smarter now. All right. This means our heart is our stewardship, and we are therefore responsible for its content and output. You've heard me teach this over and over again over the years. You are responsible for your heart's content and its output. As you grow and remove yourself from past trauma, you're now responsible for what's going into it. We do take the time to note if you were ever a victim, a true, genuine victim, rape, incest, abuse, a true victim, none of this modern woke junk, a true victim, you could not control being abused. But now that you're removed past that, you are responsible for removing that trauma out of your heart. You're responsible for finding forgiveness for your abuser. You're responsible for what's coming out of you. So we don't diminish past trauma, but we still must remember we are responsible for our heart and what we say about the abuser in our heart. Because the number one commandment for us as Christians is forgive. This is why we consistently reject woke critical race theory and social justice because the demonic core to that doctrine in the earth is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. That is a heresy from the pit of hell that any church that flirts with it is flirting with a demon. And I think if you'll even set your heart on these teachings, you'll see how all of this modern agenda and all this what's called a Gnostic movement is maneuvering in the earth. It's working to steal people's hearts away from the gospel of Christ. Paul said, I'm amazed you're so soon removed from the simplicity that's in Christ. For us, the simplicity is this. We forgive and we're conquerors. I don't hate and I'm not a victim. I'm a forgiver and a conqueror. And I can't conquer without forgiveness. All right. So what I'm going to do now is look at a bunch of scriptures that show us the heart is under our control and it is our responsibility. So we're just going to read them. I may stop and say a word or two about it along the way. Deuteronomy 6, 5, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart. That's a commandment, which means you can and you must, which means you control what you love and how much you love. This verse alone reveals you can love. It reveals what to love and how much to love it. Therefore, your heart's totally under your stewardship, even if you're under the old covenant. How many... Have you recognized that that verse is probably quoted probably another 20 times in the Bible? Love the Lord with all your heart. 
Deuteronomy 32, 46 says, And he said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words. Notice the implication. You set your heart on God's words. Which I testify among you this day, which you shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this law. Here's the stewardship. Set your hearts upon all the words. You take your heart and you set your heart on the words of God. Stewardship. Joshua 24, 23. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods are, uh, that are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord your God. You incline your heart unto the Lord your God. Once again, stewardship demonstrated under the old covenant. You incline your heart. You can't do anything with the dead spirits. We're not dealing with the spirit of man. In fact, there's only one usage of the word spirit in the entire Old Testament that seems to imply the human spirit. And that is Proverbs 27. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly. It seems to be the only use of the word spirit in all of the Old Covenant that would imply the born, what would soon become the born-again human spirit. Why? Why is it silent? Because you can't do anything about it anyway. It cannot be born again in a new creature to the resurrection of Christ. So every other use of spirit that you see will either be human spirit, excuse me, dead, uh, a demon spirit, spirit of God, or the other definition, which we'll get to in a future curriculum, of ruach, that's the Hebrew word for spirit, which means mental disposition or attitude. So then by the interpretation, uh, the contextual clues, you recognize we're not dealing with the human spirit that lives forever. We're dealing with the human attitude or the mental disposition. Old English word is constitution, not like the document, we the people, but your constitution. Anyway. There's a lot to this, but once you lay it all out, it's so simply understood. I like to use it as the doctrine of uh, the law of gravity. We get it. If I throw a baseball or a basketball off a cliff, it's going to fall. But if it comes back up at me, we also instantly understand why it did. Gust of wind. We get it. We also understand if I throw a feather off a cliff, it may or may not go down, though it's supposed to. But it may not because it could be windy. If we throw a pillar, uh, a pillow of feathers off of a cliff and it blows sideways, we understand why. We, we instantly accommodate for all these things, though the law of gravity says you go down. Right. Same with the issue of the heart. Amen. We just need to study it. Amen. And it really is amazing to me that, that not many people have scratched at this when everything we do in the kingdom rises and falls on the content of our heart. Second Chronicles eleven sixteen. And after them, out of all the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. So out of all the tribes, not everybody, but some did set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel. They set their hearts to seek God. Stewardship. They decided within themselves, I want to seek God, which means they originally were not, which means they were maybe lukewarm. They were maybe a peripheral saint. We're dealing with a situation where they determine, I want to know this God, and I want to draw closer to him. You have to grow in these things. You're not instantly on fire for God. And I, I just want us to uh, remove ourselves from the American evangelical experience of conferences or youth retreats where, man, I went and I got so on fire for God. Why were you not before? I'll tell you why you are now. You were inundated with God's presence for a three-day conference. The same presence that you can have in your closet and in your car and at your Bible study at your lunch break. You could have that. 
There's no reason to be a roller coaster Christian up and down waiting for the next move of God to set you on fire. Timothy tells us to blow upon our own coals. Stir up the gift of God that's within you. You set your heart on God. You grab yourself by the scruff of your neck and you say, man, get after it. Ezra 7.10, for Ezra had prepared his heart. Oh, so Ezra was doing this. No welfare here. Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Because if all you do is read it, you deceive yourself. And to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Psalm 86, 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And my heart needs to be united. A lot of times, see, David's in control of his heart, but he's asking God for help to do this. Lord, I want my heart to be united. Help me unite my heart to fear your name. Sometimes we pray ourselves out of the rut that we're in. You can even honestly say, I don't want to, but I want to want to. But right now I know I don't have the want to, but I know I need the want to. So Lord, help me want to want the want to want to. So I can be different. Or you can just be a Calvinist. Que sera, sera. I guess it's just not the will of God that I draw near to him because I'm not drawing near to him. No, you're just lazy. <laughs> Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days. You teach us that we may apply our hearts to wisdom, stewardship. Lord, teach me and I will apply my heart to wisdom. So the heart is yours to apply. And you and I, we all love different things based on how we've applied our heart to it. A heart is so desperately wicked and incurably sick, you can activate a desire and an affection you never knew existed two weeks ago. You can fall in love with something you never heard of before yesterday. And here's the ancient of days has always existed, and we just kind of waffle and waver with him. God help us. Proverbs 4.23, keep and guard your heart with all diligence. The understood you is there, the imperative you. It's your job because if you don't keep it and guard it, who's going to do that? We have to keep and guard our heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. That is one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible, and it says so much to us about the condition of our heart. As I've taught you for a decade now, the other translation, the Hebrew says, for your life flows out of your heart. If you don't like the quality of your life, your heart is the problem. Remember, we forgive and we conquer. We don't hate and hold grudges in our victims. Proverbs 23, 19, hear thou my son and be wise and guide your heart in the way. You guide your heart. Now, when we're, when we're children, someone guides it for us. Right now, our kids are getting older, so we're watching movies that we preview and we want them to enjoy the experience that we had watching them, but I have to prepare them. There's a bad word coming up and I want you to hear it. And I don't care if you say it once so that we don't ever say it again. I'm guiding their heart in the way, but one day I'll turn them off to their self and their God, and they have to make sure that at that point they guide themselves in the way. Amen. 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 Ecclesiastes 1.13, And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. Solomon said, I set my heart to do this. I gave my heart to seek and to search. It's under your control. You can seek and search God or not. You can seek and search the internet. 
You can seek and search the Word of God, or you can seek and search for your high school sweetheart on Facebook. I'm sorry, Meta, or whatever it's going to be called next when their reputation is in the tank. Let me stop and pastor again. I think it's 80% of Americans now believe Facebook hurts society. That was a poll this week. And some of you still don't think that applies to you. When Facebook says we hurt society, when all the psychologists say Facebook hurts society, and 90, 80%, 90% of Americans say, yeah, Facebook hurts society, and you're the Christian in my church that doesn't think it hurts you, who's the moron? You don't think it's affecting you when everybody around you, even the pagans, say, oh, no, this is hurtful. It's like the cigarette smoker saying, it doesn't hurt me. When they said, no, it's killing you. The doctors say it's killing you. Everybody says, no, it kills everybody, but me. And they even, those guys, those guys even put a little Surgeon General's warning. This will kill you. Not me. Everybody else but me. Not me. Same with social media. Remember, I, I coined Wednesday night, social media is soul porn for women. Men don't do the same thing on social media that women do. Men look at naked women. That's their weakness. Women look for affection, affirmation, and importance. That's their weakness. Social media is soul porn for women, and it's destroying them. You don't like that. Let's go back to just teaching, but that'll be preserved forever on the pod school. Fifteen years from now, they'll hear that that man was a prophet. He was calling it out. Fifteen, honey, I was calling it out twenty-five years. If you're listening to this from fifteen years in the future, I was calling this out twenty-five years ago. Amen. All right. You didn't like that little pastoral moment, but I gave it to you Wednesday, so to give it to you again. See, here's how I work. When I feel your resistance, I just back up and hit you again. That's how I pastor. Ecclesiastes 7.25, I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. So Solomon said, this is what I did with my heart. That lets us know our heart is a tool we can engage and incorporate and use. We are the stewards of it, and God's going to judge us for what we did with it. What did we give our heart over to? Did we give our heart over knowledge and searching and wisdom, or did we give our heart over to illicit lovers and things that weren't important and to social justice causes? What do we give our heart to? Because the Bible already says we give our heart to know and love our God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. One of the big heretics in the land in the Southern Baptist Convention just said this week, if your church is not involved in social justice, you're a heretic. To which I say, I'm sorry, sir, you're the heretic because you are flirting with demons. Yeah. What are we applying our heart to know, to seek, to search, and to understand? Jeremiah 29, 13, and you shall seek me and find me when you search for me on the internet under a Google search. When you shall search for me with all your heart. So we can search, but what if it's half-hearted? We won't find God. We can search, but what if it's just out of curiosity? We won't find God. We can search, but we won't, if it's not 100%, we won't find him. And I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced this is why God allows us to suffer because some of us have to hit bottom a little harder than others. 
Everybody's got a different pain threshold and pain tolerance. And some, some people are just so immune to pain, they have to really absolutely hit bottom to cry out to God. This is why prodigality is such a dangerous judge and litmus test for parents. Because as long as you're feeding and supporting the prodigal, you'll help them go to hell. Kick them out, let them live under a bridge, and help them cry out to God with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, and all their strength. When you help prodigals, all you're going to do is send them to hell comfortable. And their blood will be on your hands for eternity. Thankfully, some people, all they have to have is a cross look from their boss and they repent. Some people, all they have to hear is, you're disappointing me, and they go cry out to God. Others... It's the devil don't care. The devil may care attitude, this cavalier. God will do no good, neither will he do any evil. Those people you need to let suffer. Don't help people God's not helping. Don't help people God's not helping. Don't help people God's not helping. If you're spiritual, you'll resist people God is resisting. All right. Daniel 6, 14. Then the king, Darius, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself when he heard that he had been trapped and, and uh, set up to hurt Daniel. And he set his heart on Daniel. Well, notice how instantly he could set his heart on something. He heard a bad report. His heart is instantly set on Daniel. It's, it's amazing how instantly we can set our heart on things if we want to. You can be enjoying a sports game and get a phone call that your child was in an accident, and instantly your heart, which was cheering for the championship, is instantly set with total mama bear or daddy bear, and you will fly down the road to the emergency room in two states away at 150 miles an hour. You don't care if there's blue lights behind you. You instantly change what you set your heart on. But we won't do it for the neighbor's kid because it's not our kid, and that's all right. But that heart was able to be instantly activated because you spent 20 years caring for that child, and that child just fills your heart. Hosea 4.8, they eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their inequity. Now, Darius set his heart to rescue Daniel, but evil people set their heart on their inequity. LGBT have set their heart on their inequity. Romans 6.17 i got to move here. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. You can obey, but doesn't mean it's fully from the heart. You can obey, but is it fully from the heart? You can obey, but is it 110% from the heart? Because we can all go through the motions, but our heart's not really there. But Paul bragged on the Romans. He said, you obeyed from the heart. So we need to make sure all of our obedience and the things of life are from the heart of God. They're from our heart. They, they are genuine. And if our heart's not right, as we're obeying, we're getting it right. Second Corinthians 6, 13. Now for recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children. Be ye also enlarged, or as the New Living Translation says, open your hearts to us. What a, a final statement that says your heart is totally yours. We close our hearts so easily, but Paul said, open your hearts to us. He was telling the church that he bled for, you're mine. I birthed you. I lived for you. I've nearly died for you. And you're going to go be a little snoot letting all these false bishops come in and steal you away from me. He commands them, open your hearts to us. He says in the previous verses, we're not your problem. Your emotions are your problem. 
Isn't that still the case today? Hebrews 3.8, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Here's a commandment. You don't have to harden your heart. Why don't we harden it to sin? Why do we harden it to God? Why don't we harden our heart to uh, rebellion? Why don't we harden our heart to offense? Why don't we turn that stuff off? Why do we harden it to God and soften it to offense? James 4.8, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Notice it's our job first. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Heart purification becomes our responsibility. Heart purification is our responsibility. 2 Peter 2.14, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Cursed children, they exercise their heart. So I ask the question, what do we exercise our heart with? Do we exercise our heart with forgiveness? Do we exercise our heart with prayer? Do we exercise our heart with church attendance? Do we exercise our heart with evangelism? Anything you're not comfortable doing, get out and do it, and, and it'll become easier, even sin. But we don't tell you to do that. How do, how do people become the worst sinners in the world? They step out and practice it, and it gets easier and easier and easier. How does serving God work? You step out, and it becomes easier and easier and easier. Amen. As is clear, the heart is dynamic and under our control. And that's not all the scriptures in the Bible that relate that, but that's a good chunk right there. That means our hearts are our stewardship. You love what you want to love, and you hate what you want to hate. And whoever can get a hold of your ears will teach you to love and hate what they love and hate. That is why we say the heart is up for grabs and you have got to be careful who you're fellowshipping with. The city you live in will affect your heart. The people you run with will affect your heart. Where you get your news from will affect your heart. What you do on social media will affect your heart. Your heart is totally dynamic from the beginning of your life to the end of your life. And that's why we guard it. So it is in our power to make sure our heart is this. Here's a list. Fully loving God. And there's a bunch of other verses that say, love the Lord your God with all your heart. So I want you to see, we're, I, I've thrown about 80 verses here that show the heart under our control. 80 verses total. I think there's 83 verses in this curriculum. Our heart is under our control to set upon God's word. Look at all those verses that say, set your heart on God or set your heart. Or some of these verses say they set their heart on evil. But the implication is it was in their power to set. Our heart is under our control to in, be inclined toward God. Look at all the verses that talk about our ability to incline our heart one way or another. Well, I'm just not real inclined to go to church. Well, get one. Get a heart inclination. Well, I'm just not real inclined to go evangelizing. Well, get an inclination. Well, I'm just not real inclined. Get an inclination. Our hearts and our power to be prepared to seek God. We've got four verses there that talk about preparing your heart to seek God. That's how we should come to church, with a heart prepared to seek God. Let, let me help you. Um, if you would come to church with a heart open to hear from heaven, my post-service queue won't be 15 people long. The reason my post-service queue is 15 people long is because you didn't come to hear your answer. You came to talk to me. You didn't come to hear your answer. You came, ignored the service, and wanted to talk to me. I am not Jesus Christ. 
If you'd set your heart on God giving you your answer, I could teach on the Levitical priesthood and you'd figure out how to fix your marriage because that's the Holy Ghost at work. So come to church prepared to see God. You have your power to unite your heart in reverence to God. You have power in your heart to apply it to wisdom. You have power in your heart. It's power to keep and guard your heart. You have power to guide your heart in the way. You have power to apply your heart, authority to apply your heart to seek and search and know God. You have the authority to set your heart on the right thing, the proper thing. You have authority over your heart to fully be fully committed in that ser- searching and setting. You can open your heart to that which is right. The reason our marriages start to hurt is because some knucklehead in your covenant shuts their heart down. Because they got offended. You've been married that long. Don't you know he's going to do that every time you do that? <laughs> it's like an idiot's game. How come you're still offending each other after 20 years of marriage? Really, are we that dumb? You can tell I'm pastoring now when I'm using terms like moron, stupid, and dumb. <laughs> you can open your heart to the right thing. You can open your heart to God, open your heart to your boss, open your heart to your pastor, open your heart to your professor. You can open your heart to an adulteress, open your heart to porn. You can open your heart to alcohol. You can open your heart to gossip and slander. It's totally up to us. We have authority to keep our hearts soft. We have authority to purify our hearts. We have authority to properly exercise in righteousness our hearts. If we do not obey the preceding list, God will not do it for us. It's totally our job. Part of preaching, good old-fashioned preaching, because this is considered more deep teaching, aside from all the woke stuff I just stomped on. The way old-fashioned preaching would work is the preacher would look at you with fire in his eyes and say, quit sinning! And your heart would say, oh my God, I don't want to sin. And you just naturally activate all this at once. But we're so numb anymore, and preachers can't even really preach because we're so weak and sissy, and we've been lied to by Christian television. So we can't really shoot you straight anymore, not with a hard sermon, because you'll leave and go to the donut church. We really handle you with sissy gloves to hope maybe we can get some word in you and toughen you up a little bit. But in the old-fashioned day, he'd just preach hellfire and brimstone, and you'd instantly do all this in a moment of time, and we call it repentance. That heart would instantly say, I repent, and everything would be lined up. If we do not obey the preceding list, God will not do it for us. He will search our hearts and judge us based on its content and either rebuke or reward us accordingly. He will search our hearts Because it is a stewardship, he will judge us. So our next little section here that we have to move through very quickly is Jesus, the heart searcher. If our heart is just one of our many stewardships, and we've proven very thoroughly that it is, we can expect God to judge our superintendents from time to time. How are we superintending that stewardship? As it turns out, one of the many ministries of the Lord Jesus Christ is that of heart searcher. Of the Trinity... It is the Son that searches our hearts. Revelation 2, 21 through 23, And I, Jesus, gave her, Jezebel, the pastor's wife, 
space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed of sickness, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he, Jesus Christ, which searches the emotions and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Jesus Christ, even to the New Testament church, is judging and searching emotions, and hearts. Just because you have emotions doesn't mean you're right with them. Oprah taught us, and Dr. Phil, and all the Sally, Jesse, Raphael, they taught us to go with our emotions. They were building upon the pop psychology revolution in the 60s. The Bible says you don't get to go with your emotions. It's one of the things Jesus Christ judges quickest. You don't have permission to laugh like that. You don't have permission to hate like that. You don't have permission to be joyful at that. We, we don't rejoice it when, uh, when perversion prevails. We rejoice when right and truth prevails. So the Lord judges our emotions. Jesus Christ directly revealed that he, it was he that is the heart searcher. This is not always a good thing. For the Jezebel Thyatira, it meant horrific judgment for her and her disciples. To that we add, be careful who you follow, even in the local church. Please know I don't endorse everybody in our church. And I've learned this. I can't always help everybody, but I usually find the people that hate me, they find each other out in the church. I don't even know why you come here if you don't like me. In chemistry, there's this thing called a chelating agent. It's Latin for the claw. It goes into bloodstreams and, and aqueous solutions, and it attaches to heavy metals, and it helps it to precipitate out. I usually just leave idiots alone. Because they'll flock to each other in a church and they'll grab a hold of each other and precipitate out of the local church. Amen. And they'll go to the donut church yes. with the rest of our has-beens. Right. <laughs> who die early, whose kids fornicate or become gay or drink or whatever. You just leave the tares alone and let them chelate out. Amen. The vote, this verse quotes Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. Exactly what Jesus said in Revelation 2. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. This is one of the first characteristics ascribed to God in the entire Bible. Even in Genesis, God searched the hearts of mankind and gave unto them according to the fruit of their doings. There's eight things the Lord reveals about himself in the first six chapters. None of them is love. The love of God is not spoken of until Exodus or Deuteronomy. And even then, it's not even God's love. It's our love toward him. So the Bible is not this book of mushy, gushy, love, 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 love. The first thing God revealed is I'm a creator, I'm a gardener, I'm an employer, I'm a lawgiver, I'm a co-laborer, I'm a spouse provider, and I'm a judge, number seven, by the way, and then I'm a heart searcher. Genesis 6, 5 says, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Even in the beginning, the Lord is judging the hearts. Why did God reject Cain's offering? Because the motive was wrong behind it. He did not give the offering joyfully. That is a heart being searched out. He doesn't care about the offering if your heart's not with the offering. He wants our heart, not the money. The resultant judgment was the great flood. Obviously, the Lord still searches and tries the hearts. The result is either rewards or judgment. Thankfully, he has promised to never flood the world again. Part of stewarding the heart involves us asking for God's help in judging our heart. 
part of stewarding our heart is asking God to help us with it. Every other stewardship in life, money, marriage, kids, ministry, career, job, education, we say, Lord, help, Lord, help, Lord, help. Part of stewarding our heart is, Lord, help. Show me, show me what's wrong with me. Show me, search the inner recesses of my heart. Show me. The psalmist said the same thing, Psalm 26.2. Examine me, O Lord, improve me. Try me, smelt me, refine my emotions, that's reins, and my heart. New Living Translation says, test my motives in my heart. It's a good prayer to pray every day. Amen. Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Great psalm. Search me, know my heart. Try me, that is smelt, refine. Know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David even taught these principles to his son Solomon, 1 Chronicles 28, 9. And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. That means he has the control to do so. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found of thee. But if you forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Paul taught that the Lord's act of searching the believer's heart is critical in assisting the Holy Spirit to intercede for us. So just so you know, we haven't moved beyond it because we're in the New Testament. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Holy Spirit also helps our weaknesses or infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So here we see the work of the Holy Spirit interceding through us through groanings and travailings. But Paul switches it up. Now he begins to bring in the other two members of the Trinity. And he, Jesus, he that searches the hearts. We just saw in four verses, that's Jesus Christ. He that searches the hearts knows what is the mind or the intention of the Spirit because he, that is the Holy Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God, and that is the Father. So do you see the Trinity there? All right? I have taught this in times past. We are so broken, so messed up, the entire Trinity has to activate to intercede for us. That's on top of our discipleship. That's on top of our church service. That's on top of being a steward of God's word. That's on top of our Bible study. We're still so messed up. When the Holy Ghost travails and we get into groanings and utterances that cannot be spoken of, it's almost like the Lord says, this is so nasty, you don't even need to know it. Well, how do I intercede? Have you ever done that? Anybody here? Uh, that, I do that on a regular basis. If you've never been there, just keep walking with God. You'll get there. There, there are many times throughout the week, I'll, maybe not throughout the week, but throughout the month, I'll have to stop and just groan because it's right here. And I, the Bible tells me it's prayer for me. What's so nasty? I can't even know it. That is just groanings that cannot be uttered. Sometimes you can't even give words to it. It's just a guttural. Mm. Jesus groaned in the spirit, so don't think it's weird. Because when you make that noise, you think it sounds weird. I, I would say it's because you're not familiar with it. I actually, it, it used to scare me. I'm just thankful now because it means he's cleaning up something I don't even know about. It's like, hallelujah. Where are you going with that bucket and Clorox and gasoline, Lord? Don't you never mind. I'm going to take care of it. Hallelujah. <laughs> Just let me come out better. 
These two verses reveal the work of the Trinity in the act of intercession on behalf of the believer. Number one, Jesus searches the hearts. He knows the Holy Spirit's intention when he makes groanings that cannot be uttered. What's the Holy Spirit's intention? Well, to make intercession for us according to the will of the Father. But he makes intercession for us uh, through inarticulate speech. That's what the Amplified says. And then verse three, or point three, all intercession is according to the will of God the Father. Now quickly, the Lord Jesus searches our hearts and examines whether its motives and intentions are in line with the will of the Father. He then reveals the proper prayer to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who receives of Jesus, according to John 16, 14. The Holy Spirit then prays for the necessary changes. This further confirms that even after the new birth, the Christian's heart continues to be desperately wicked and incurably sick. I have groaned a lot, which means the first groaning didn't fix it all. And probably the newest groaning fixed a new mess I was working to create. So sick, in fact, our heart is, the entire Trinity works through self-intercession to heal it and make adjustments. This further proves that our heart can be changed, meaning that it is dynamic in its condition. This is further confirmed by Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Lord and his gospel. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted or the shivered heart to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. This mandate and assignment is unchanging. The Lord is still binding up the brokenhearted. And here's the thing about the heart. You can be totally awesome today and your loved one dies tomorrow and you're broken again. That's how it's incurably sick. You're doing awesome today on top of the world. And then a loved one dies and your heart's broken for the next six months. But he still mends the brokenhearted. Amen. The Lord still binds up. Remember our definition. The heart is the manifestation of the operation of the soul. That is, it is the manifestation of the operation of the mind, the will, and the emotions of man, whether born again or lost. The heart is whatever a man thinks and keeps on thinking, wants and keeps on wanting, and emotes and keeps on emoting. We will spend the next three lessons proving this definition and explaining how we are able to steward our heart. Amen.